we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we record this podcast, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We talk a lot on this podcast about medical practices, and we would just like to say that we completely acknowledge that the medical practices of the First Nations people were created and used well, well, well before any of the Western medical practices that we mainly talk about on this show in relation to this show. And the medical practices of our First Nations people are still being used successfully today. So you blew me off for a bottle of tequila. Tequila's no good for you. Doesn't call, doesn't write. It's not nearly as much fun to wake up to. Hello. Salutations. Welcome to Scalpels and Tequila, a Grey's Anatomy recap podcast. My name is Ayla. And I'm Tamsin. And today we are doing Season 3, Episode 20, Time After Time. Can you believe we're up to Episode 20? I said it last week. We we are so close to the end of Season 3. And for anyone who's listening along in current time, Season 19's back again. Oh, yeah. How are it's, we doing It's both? weird. We don't normally talk about where we're at in the in the current uh, Grey's Anatomy when we do our recap ones, but we are we are mere weeks away from season nineteen coming back. No, no, no. Recording it, we are, but this will be released. Oh, in a month. Oh my god! Which Maybe will mean we'll be on the, the second new- episode of season nineteen. <gasps> I didn't even think about so that. Excited. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. I know. Okay. <laughs> we like okay. cats. Time after time. That is the episode today. Mm-hmm. I feel like time after time was probably the high school breakup song for like most of the 90s. N- n- no, no. That vitamin C song. No, that was the early thousands. That came out uh, in 2001. But yes, you are correct. That was not only my primary school, but my high school breakup song. Yes. Save! <laughs> my primary school breakup song and my high school breakup song. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2001. How does it go again? And we'll do be friends forever Yeah, as our lives change. But turns out our mothers were right. And you're probably not going to be friends with everyone you were friends with in high school for the rest of your life. Or primary school. True. Weird fact, though, I actually went to, I had, I went to, my my small town that I grew up in had like two primary schools. And so to get, so high school was like in the bigger city mm. that was like half an hour away. So a lot of the same people I went to primary school with, a lot of us actually went to high school together too so it's funny like there's this group of us that all grew up in this town we all went you know we started kinder preschool together so we have pictures of us when we're like three and then like graduating at the same time like 18 how crazy is that I I feel like that's really rare the thing that really strikes me thinking back to high school is starting year seven and looking at the year 12s and being like they look like adults Look at 18-year-olds now and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, yeah. we baby. But this whole school chat completely ruined my beautiful segue to mothers. Pretend that we didn't talk about school and um, I, what we were saying um, time after time and you said, we will still be friends forever. But like our mothers said, 
we won't be friends forever with most of the people we were in high school with. We're still not any good at this, Tamsin. I feel like, look, that segue was fine, even though it wasn't even from the song that the show was about and then we got very sidetracked and distracted and started talking about another song. And at the end, most of the Americans just think our accents are charming and like to listen to us anyway. Maybe, or they think we sound wild and like we're catching crocodiles on the weekend. No. (laughs) That's not a knife. This is a knife. I'll do it properly. Come on. (laughs) That's that's not, I don't have a broad accent. That's not a knife. This is a knife. (laughs) I think it's something that's particularly strange about Australia that Everywhere else in the world, within sort of 20 kilometres, 20 miles, I don't know, accents change dramatically. So look at the states, every different state, which are all, like, I think Texas, Texas is the biggest state, and that's only as big as Tasmania, which is tiny for us. But every state has its own culture, it's got its own accent, it's got its own foods. So they kind of assume that that's what it's like here, but it's it's not. No. Nah. I, you grew up in a rural area, so you should probably sound a little bit different. Not well, yes, but I grew up on the coast, so it's like kind of different. Yeah, it's very confusing. How accents you know. aren't ter- terribly dictated by where we live. South Australians sent, tend to say castle and vase, yeah. and Queenslanders sometimes have a a thing with the double O's. So instead of saying school, they'll say skill. Skill. Yeah. Yeah. Skill. But it's also not everyone. Yeah. I remember working in the UK, our head chef was Australian. He was from Ringwood, which is about four train stops away from where I did my high schooling and teen years in a suburb called Box Hill. Everyone assumed that we were from opposite ends of the country because he sounded about as ochre as you could get after 12 years in the UK and I sound the way that I do. It's like, no, they're just. Uh, it's really hard to pick accents here. I think it's really, from? yeah, it's really bizarre. Also, another thing that people not from Australia don't understand is our state, like our country is really big, so- but we only have like, we we don't have very many states. So we live in Victoria and I can I can drive for about five hours and still be in the same state. I remember again when I was in the UK talking. But we live kind of in the middle of the state as well. So yeah. across from one side of the state to the other side of the state would take like 10 hours and you're mm-hmm. still in Victoria. Well, I was talking to my manager when I was in the UK about going to see my boyfriend who lived in Sydney because I was only coming home for two weeks. And she was like, oh, well, why don't you just drive up for the weekend and see him? It it takes less mm. time for her to drive from London to Poland <laughs> than what it would have taken, which is directly across Europe, than it would have taken me to drive from Melbourne to Sydney. Yeah. Melbourne's actually the largest metropolitan city in the world. Our CBD is quite small. What? Our CBD is quite small. But the geographical area that is considered Melbourne is oh, the Oh, yeah, that. That makes sense. I think you can drive for an hour and a half in almost every direction and you are still in metropolitan Melbourne. I mean, depending on the traffic, it can be longer. (laughs) True, Uh, but I'm talking 3 a.m. drive. 
hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. no, I know. I was trying to be funny. I'm trying to keep it light. Oh. Unless we're going to get into geographical See what it's like. Okay, we're off topics. Come at us with the monologue, Tamsin, as we have both been going on a rather long monologue ourselves. Time after time, season three, episode 20, we open up with Meredith's monologue as usual. A patient's history is as important as their symptoms. It's what helps us decide if a burn. <clears throat> a patient's history as a patient's history is as important as their symptoms. It is what helps us decide if heartburns, a heart attack, if a headache is a tumor. Sometimes patients will try to rewrite their own histories. They'll claim they don't smoke or forget to mention certain drugs, which in surgery can be the kiss of death. We can ignore it all we want, but our history eventually always comes back to haunt us. Some people believe that without history, our lives amount to nothing. At some point, we all have to choose. Do we fall back on what we know or do we step forward into something new? It's hard not to be haunted by our past. Our history is what shapes us, what guides us. Our history resurfaces time after time after time. So we have to remember sometimes the most important history is the one that we are making today. We both thought that this episode had a really strong focus on mothers, which is generally, well, not generally, it is part of everyone's history. We came from a uterus. Mm -hmm. And I think no matter what sort of relationship your mother holds in your life, it's, it is very informing because that first nine months of your life, you are in a womb that is connected to another person. So that person is in some way going to subconsciously impact you and your life. In saying that, both of us are incredibly pro-choice and do not necessarily believe that life begins at conception. Just to be clear. Totally. <laughs> a thousand percent. But what happens while you are within the womb can definitely affect stuff later in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it definitely does. And I think the first moments of being born, I understand that what I just said. I'm glad you clarified that. I'm not trying to say that you are a baby or you are a child for nine months. I'm just trying to say that that I'm just trying to say that everyone has a mum, whether or not you still do, whether or not you have a relationship, whether or not that relationship is whatever it may be, there was a person, a human who birthed you at the beginning of your life. And that Uteruses has to impact should you rule in some the world way. because it wouldn't exist without them. Mm-hmm. 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 But this, and this episode is called Time After Time. And this episode, even though the monologue is saying to us that the theme of this episode is your past and your past informing your present, it's also just really about motherhood and what that means. I think the only people in our episode today who don't really have a mother uh, storyline is Weber and Christina. Christina's history is all about her past history and the way she's perceived by Colin and him trying to scold mm-hmm. her for the changes that she's made in her life, which 
he's seeing as a negative and she's standing up for herself and standing up for the fact that she didn't compromise herself, that she's just learned that you have to think about other people sometimes. And for Weber, it's what a what a huge what a huge episode mm-hmm. this is for Christina. As much as it doesn't feel like there's not there's no big event that happens, um, it's not a loud event that happens in Christina's life today. But what she does is, and she the way she explains it is, she's playing chess. She's playing a game. She's using these two men to make moves to kind of beat Harlow at his own game. He's been walking around the hospital, dick swinging, peeing on his territory, trying to make Christina what want him feel but bad, also just feel like she made the wrong Burke choice. And she's like, uh, uh-uh. it's totally. He's making Burke feel small to show up. Christina to be like you clearly made the wrong choice and if if someone if someone was doing that to me I think well I hope actually you know what now because I'm a better person I would look at that now and say wow I clearly made mm-hmm. the right choice in so leaving poorly for you. Burke because you remember when Colin first entered the chat Burke was so excited to meet one of his mentors and this whole thing is just proven. Yeah. Do not meet your heroes. Do and not that meet scene your at heroes. These. So the, the gentleman that they're doing surgery on, they're doing a piggyback surgery where basically they put two hearts in, whatever. It, none of this matters. What matters is that at every turn he is nitpicking at Burke, he is being nasty, he is talking over him, he is correcting mm. him, and Burke was just so excited to finally learn about this procedure that he's been hearing about, experience some things, and by the end of the surgery, which he was scolded and kicked out of, he's standing over the table just feeling so defeated. He he even looks small, like in his posture and in his, you can feel Mm. his energy is small. And he, he wanted we to never learn. Like he this. wanted to experience. He wanted to be there. He wanted to meet his idol, which is, which is a really exciting place for us as viewers to see Burke because we normally just see him as, as the you idol, know, all knowing. No one can teach him anything. I know every like. There's nothing left for me to learn. I'm too good at everything. And all of a sudden, we had this moment where we could see Burke learn. See Burke change, see Burke excited to learn something new and to admit that he didn't know something. And what an exciting place for us to see this character. And we just don't get to see it. But I think what we also learn in this is that, do you remember a few episodes ago, Burke says to Christina, we are not the same because I didn't have talent straight away. I had to fight and I had to Mm. learn and I had to practice. And he's like, and I made myself who I am, whereas, like, you're lucky. Naturally talented. You're just, you're, like, innately talented. And it's like we got a little taste of maybe what it's been like for Burke, especially as, like, a person of colour. This is one of the first times I've really felt Striving to fight. And I hate Mm. that he got a little bit of a taste of his own medicine, to be honest, because we've seen him treat people like this before. We saw him do it to George. We saw him do it to Alex. We've mm-hmm. definitely seen him do it to Christina. But in this scene, we see the the reason that he's kind of like that, 
the the fragility comes the nastiness comes from a place of fragility knowing that because he was pushed in that way he learned but it just this this whole scene is devastating and all Christina does is comes in and says hey can you tell me why we would have done this just to sort of remind him that he he isn't what he Colin says he is. He's good at his job. And that, yeah. Totally. And it's it's just a little, it's a small way that she can boost his ego because she knows that Burke has this very a twisted and hard way of looking at himself. He's like, I have to be Preston Burke. This is who I am. I am this... Mm this monster that I've created who has to be all knowing all the time and who has to be perfect all the time. And he, he's kind of shattered his own self. Well, Marlowe shattered his own reflection of himself and Christina knows in order for Burke to kind of snap out of it, pick himself up. He needs to feel like he knows stuff. Like she's just boosting his ego. Really? She just knows exactly what he needs to hear, which is. I didn't see it as a boost of ego. I saw it as Christina reminding Burke because what Marlowe did was scold him and say, if you want to kill the guy, you'll Mm. do that. Fuck off. I think I saw it as Christina reminding Burke that he is good and he does know what he's doing. Totally. So not necessarily building the ego, but just reaffirming his knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved watching Christina put Marlowe in his place because he says the Christina I knew was concerned with excellence. She would never play the part of a helpless woman, not for the ego of a man. And she's like, no, I learned that sometimes you have to think about other people. And he's like, you compromise yourself. And all she says is no. no. But he admits that he was being a foolish man. He was like, I came to a position that was frankly beneath me. Go fuck yourself for the hope of seeing a woman. It's like, dude, that's pretty pathetic. He also says, so I can be near a woman who no longer exists. And he says that as such a dig. He says that to make her feel shit, like she has compromised herself and she's not as good a surgeon as she used to be. But I think she takes it as a compliment. Because do you remember last week we saw Burke and he was saying um, he was saying to Christina like right before he went into that interview, like, I don't want to go back. I want to make sure that today I'm better than what I was. I want to move forward. I want to look forward. Mm. And by Christina admitting like, hey, sometimes you need to like think about other people as well as yourself. You need to build someone else up. Because by her pretending that she doesn't know why he used a stitch, that doesn't cost her anything. That doesn't harm her in no. any way. That just helps build someone else up. She knows in herself that she knows the answer to that question. It's it's funny that you mentioned that scene specifically last episode mm. because I forgot to bring up because I, I tend to watch the previous episodes so I can have a, a trail on. When she's having that chat with Berg, this deeply obnoxious early thousands electronic music starts playing oh. really loudly. <laughs> And then all of this episode, it was like they had the music producer from Scrubs or 
I don't know, a soap opera because the background music, all of this episode was so very like weird and twinkly. And for my Scrubs fans out there, that like piano music they play whenever anything sad happens in Scrubs. It was just this episode. The music, the last two episodes has been wild. That's so funny. Um, I remember... Oh, I remember that music you're talking about in the last one, that like super intense totally. electronic music. And then I was going to mention the music as well because I love that this opened with Amy Winehouse, You Know I'm No Good. Yep. And I love mm-hmm. that song. And I was just like, oh, yeah, so good. Uh, this episode also opened with Susan and Derek just being in the kitchen mm. and her bringing bags and bags of groceries. And I was like, what? is going on yeah so w- we kind of learn that every week so well for the last two weeks this may be the second time susan's been doing grocery shopping for meredith and and for the house because alex comes in he's like is this for everyone and she's like yes 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 like help yourself it's for everyone um and also we learn that derek and susan have been having some chats like they are getting along they are bouncing off each other they Derek goes and she's like, have a great interview today. You've got this. You were born to be chief. And he's like, yeah, like, thanks, Susan. Yeah. Like they may as well have done a secret handshake. They look like they could be dating. Like she looks like the age appropriate partner for Derek. What? Come on. I mean, I don't know. I I don't think they look like, I, I think this is, I don't know. This feels, this feels like a, um, a son-in-law, mother-in-law relationship to me. It's, yeah, it's just, it's, I feel like if you have to ask if you're overstepping, you're probably overstepping. Totally. So, okay, look. But it's funny how. You're a bit better at being vulnerable on this podcast than I am, but I'm going to say a thing. This episode, Susan reminds me a lot of my mother. We... It's hard because she she might listen to this. I love my mum, but she this is her way of showing love as well. She will drop off groceries. She will drop off food. She will be around. She will do everything she can. And sometimes I am not good at receiving that. I find it overbearing sometimes. I find it hard. I find it like she's trying to insert herself into my life when I am just trying to figure out how to have a life on my own and how to be an adult. And sometimes my mum constantly coming in and trying to fix things that aren't broken makes me feel like a child and I don't, I'm not very good at receiving it. And sometimes I turn into a little bit of a bitch and sometimes I'm mean about it and rude about it like Meredith is to Susan in this episode. But this episode I feel bad for Susan. I know she's overbearing. Meredith is so clear with her boundaries and I have been so clear with my boundaries to my mum on multiple occasions, but my mum just comes back. And watching this makes me feel bad. It makes me go, you know what? Susan is just trying to help. That's all she's doing. And maybe I should be a little bit nicer to my mum sometimes. I don't disagree with you, but if a boundary has been set, it has been set for a reason. Yeah, that's when I feel 
Yeah. And overstepping that boundary is still disrespectful at the end of the day. And it doesn't mean that you're not grateful that she's doing these things. But in the same token, if they are things that make you uncomfortable, you're entitled to your feelings and you're entitled to your boundaries. And no amount of gaslighting yourself or being gaslit is going to help that situation. And I think a lot of this comes from what we were talking about uh, sort of at the start of the year about perceiving malice because this is something that you don't want and that Gray doesn't want. There's no way to perceive it but as malicious because you've said you don't want it. So why is it still happening? Totally, but it's so hard because it's like you watch it. It's frustrating because the answer is, I'm just trying to be nice. But you watch it and you watch it happening here and you go, these are just people caring about another person and doing actions that they think is right. But, and this is what we were talking about this the other day as well, like, and it's this acting thing that you learn. You learn not to judge the character because every single person they don't they're not trying to be malicious they're doing what they believe is right and that's all she's doing and she thinks she knows what's right and she admits she says like I this is the only way I know how to care and how to mother and this is what I've done and she also actually this is in Susan's world she says Mm. that actually she's also coming from a place of guilt she feels guilty yeah. And she's overcompensating for that. Oh, my God. I can't not see. I, this is, I'm, we've swapped. <laughs> I know. The biggest difference between this situation that Meredith is going through and your situation is the boundaries. All Meredith has said is stop, leave me alone. I've been nasty about it. But I know that you have explained the ways in which you do perceive the love and her involvement and have laid out the kind your expectations of what you're comfortable with whereas gray doesn't so susan is just desperately trying to do the only thing she knows how to do to show that she cares but the difference is once you lay out hey here are things that here is here are my love languages here are the ways that i actually receive love and feel it earnestly And trying to protect me and mother me and look after me like I'm a child is not one of those ways. Knowing what's going on in my life and asking me questions and being supportive is something that I appreciate more than unexpected Mm. turning up at my door. You've gone through those conversations with your parent. Meredith hasn't. This is the first time she's really explained to Susan how she feels about it and why this is so confronting for her. You know, she lets Susan know my, I've only ever known overbearing, not overprotective. So I don't know how to do this. And she didn't know about the guilt that Susan was feeling and the reparations that Susan is currently trying to pay her. And I think you're seeing yourself as the nasty Meredith who's snapping at someone trying to do a nice thing. But you're not doing that. You're trying to reestablish that you've had this conversation many times and it's still Mm. being ignored like a childish request and you're an adult and you want to be treated in a certain way. 
Oh God, I feel so. Yeah, I feel so bad. I always so just so because. Bad. Yeah, it's it, it, <laughs> it's a childhood of being brought up by boomers who are really into gaslighting us. It's like I said before. I heard it a thousand times growing up. You probably heard it. You're just not being appreciative of me. I'm just trying to be nice. But one person's definition of nice is not the other person's definition of being nice. And if you've established the way that you would like to be treated and the things that you do perceive as love and kindness and caring and nice. Mm. I mean, yeah, we have very different mothers, but yeah. Yeah, but every one of our generation kind of grew up with similar parents. You know, the fun meme that's going around at the moment, whereas boomers, so you've had uh, mental health issues. Do you want to seek help or double it and pass it along? I'll double it and pass it along. And our parents, so do you want to double it, pass it along, or do you want to deal with it? I'll double it and pass it along. And now we're the generation that's trying to deal with it, and it's hard. And we spoke about it at Christmas time about setting boundaries and that sort of shit. And it's it's rough. And to everyone out there who writes in and tells us that, you know, they go through similar things and it's hard to mm-hmm. hear. And I'm sure for a lot of people, this episode was hard to watch. It's we all have complicated relationships with our families and we don't want to continue on with the status quo of smiling and nodding and appeasing people we want to build relationships that are built on trust and mutual understanding and love and unfortunately if the other side of the party isn't totally coming well prepared to play or understand it makes it difficult but you are not meredith in this no 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 not at all and even if you are by the end she's trying to fix things because you know this is what mothers do and meredith was raised by wolves totally and Meredith Meredith says to Susan, it's okay. And Meredith is, she's laid her boundaries down, but she's keeping the door ajar. Yeah. She's not blocking this off completely, but she needs more space. It needs to come a little bit slower. I think I spoke about a couple of times, I had an auntie that I recently met that's very Susan-y. Mm, yeah, that's right. It all. And I only just realised last week didn't hear from her on Christmas didn't hear from her on my birthday and I think the last time I spoke to her I was like hey this is all a lot for me and I don't need weekly phone calls and it took me saying it a few times and I had to have my stepmother have the conversation with her as well Mm. but it's I think boundaries are really hard for different generations who were never taught to set them themselves because they see it as a rejection and it's not It's just this is something that makes me uncomfortable and I'm not used to and I don't want to do it. Yeah. If there's something that's important to you, I will do my best to make it, but I just don't need that. It's it's the same with Meredith. She doesn't – she likes – I think she's enjoying the idea that Susan is there and she has a person to go to if she needs it, Mm. but but she's lived her entire life without this mother figure. She doesn't need to be mothered. She'll – she also doesn't know how to have this type of relationship with a mother oh. figure. She doesn't know how to act like this. And whereas the reason why Derek is finding it so easy is because Derek grew up in a big mm-hmm. family, a big family that 
kind of, you know, he had a lot of sisters. His mom and dad were there. Like everyone seemed very present in each other's lives. So he, this is second That's nature exactly to him. exactly the same for Susan. Whereas this is very new. Like, yeah. How she knows how to be a mum. But I think the thing that she's forgotten is that Susan's forgotten is that Meredith doesn't really need a mother figure, maybe having a confidant or a, a close friend that's older and wiser than her. Great. She's got plenty of those. Totally. And she does, but she doesn't have anyone not in. I think it would be good for Meredith to have a, a friend who is older, a confidant who is older, who isn't in yeah, the hospital. Exactly. This is so different. Her whole world is this place. And her mum was involved in the hospital. Her dad was, you know, knew everything going on in the hospital when she mm. was little as well. Like I don't know if she's ever had an adult that's not part of it. Disconnected yeah. from this hospital world. But yeah, I think Susan just I think this conversation has maybe helped Susan understand that Meredith doesn't need a mother, but that doesn't disvalidate Susan being in her life. She just doesn't need her there as a mother totally. Figure. Totally. Great. That's why she says, this is all too much. I can't be your daughter, charity case, or the thing you're trying to fix. I'm not your daughter. She doesn't want a mother. Mm -hmm. She wants mutual respect. Totally. Which I think is probably something that you're striving for. You'd love your mother, but you don't Mm. necessarily want parenting anymore you want a mutual respectful relationship Mm. you okay yeah 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 i'm all good i'm all good but weber apparently what he needs is a wingman so mark and weber today have a funny little moment in the elevator where mark watches chief very very unsuccessfully try and flirt with someone else who's from the West Wing, by the way. We had a West Wing person last. We had Elizabeth Moss on last episode. And um, Hmm. this actress, whose name I don't know, but as a West Wing fan, I've totally forgotten her name, but she is one of the secretaries in the West Wing. Um, So I don't know. The West Wing's just ended and everyone's coming to do little cameos and greys is is what's happening, which is fun for me. I love that. But he's a a terrible, terrible flirt. And she gets out two floors earlier than the button that she pressed as Mark notices. And then he saunters over and he's like, that was bad. You need a, you need a wingman. I am that guy. You need a wingman. And I got you, babe. And later on in the episode, Webb is at the nurse's station and Mark saunters up and coyly smiles at a nurse, comments on her shoes and says, hey, we should go running sometime. Just to prove how good of a flirt he is. Mm-hmm. But then by the end of the episode, Mark says something that really did not sit well with me. He, I know where this is going Weber and caves. I totally agree. I know exactly where this is going. Mm-hmm. He takes Weber to a bar and we all know Weber's in AA. He's recovering. He says, why did you bring me to a bar? I don't drink. To which Mark's response is, do you have it written down? <sighs> that's I Yeah, I do, but do you want to say it? Oh, well, that's a good thing you don't drink. It's better to keep your mind sharp and let the ladies do the drinking. Uh, look, <laughs> look, 
Oh, you cannot justify that statement under in any way. There is no justifying that. That is predatory and disgusting. And the woman that he decides to wingman Weber with is visibly his granddaughter's age. And he's like, I'll leave you to alone. And she's like, oh, I should get back to class. Uh, I'm in college. Yeah. Do you come here often? Oh, only on my way back from bio. No. Like, how did you think that this woman was anywhere relatively near your age? So Mark fails, but thank God because Addison slides away in and is like, hey, ignore Mark, ignore all of that. I'll I'll help you. He's not wrong. You do. And he said something and I immediately turned to Evan and was like, yeah, when you're in a relationship for a long time, you think you've still got game. And then the game changes. True. Or as you say, the last time I was picking up women, I had a Harvey Wallbanger in one hand and an Afro pick in the other. Yes. I, I want to see a, that flashback. I don't know what an Afro pick is. Is that the comb? Yes, the comb. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you don't know what a Harvey Wallbanger is, but I feel like you'd really like it. No, I know what that is. It's a cocktail. Yeah. Do you know what's in it? No. Shot of vodka, shot of vanilla galliano, topped up with orange juice. Oh, oh yeah. Mm. Yeah, there you go. There's your Grey's recipe for today. Hey, I still don't. We can call it the flirty chief. Yeah, I feel like the flirty chief would just be a full glass of vodka with like a of orange juice. (laughs) I feel like that's a that's a that's more than flirty. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Addison's like, look, Mark's an idiot. Practice on me because she is age appropriate. Not only that, she's just, she's just the best. She's just, mm-hmm. um, she's A actually woman? there to help. She actually knows what women like and she cares and she's just the fucking best. And I want to be her best friend. I want to sit at a bar and like chat to her. Kate Walsh, be my friend. Be our friend. <sighs> um, well, the thing is that Mark's a pickup artist. Whereas Addison's a woman. Yeah. She's not a girl who's easily impressed by titles. She's a woman, which is who Weber should be or I assume would be looking for. What I do Unless find. Unless he, yeah, is, you know, someone who you can mutually respect. What I do find funny is that her thing that she says is like, ask me to dance. And it's so simple. And it's not something you say. Like I also, we never see people dancing at Joe's really unless they're wasted. Mm-hmm. But it's really nice. There's this beautiful scene of the two of them just laughing and dancing, and it feels so refreshing to see some of our characters like a bit free, a bit loose, a bit happy, out of the hospital, just enjoying their time. They're also not at Joe's, which is an extension of the hospital. Guess they are. Mm-mm. Different bar. Really? Yep. I swear they're at Joe's. Mm-mm. Okay. I think it's the same set as Joe's, but they've made it look different. I pay far yeah. too much attention to bars. I didn't notice that at all. I just assumed they're at Joe's, mm-hmm. but it's just really nice. It's a really beautiful scene. I love this, that these two characters that aren't 
aren't flirting, aren't making little eyes at each other. They don't have any sexual tension. They're just friends and they're just enjoying each other's time and company. Platonic camaraderie. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's actually the we've jumped very ahead. That's the very finale scene of this episode. And I love that it ends like that. Well, I think while we're talking about Weber, we need to talk about Derek and Weber because that's the other big interaction that Weber has Mm -hmm. this episode. Because the, you mentioned before that Susan was talking about his interview today, but it wasn't an interview. Yeah. She's like, you got this, you got this, babe, you got this. Basically Derek was sitting down with the chief, similar to what you said about Christina and Burke, and Burke being the chief's pick, Derek was brought in yeah. to be chief, or so he thought. Well, well, we know chief both promised chief promised chief to both Burke mm-hmm. and Derek, which is kind of what started this whole dick swinging competition in the first place. At the start of the one year that we've had, apparently, in these three seasons. But Derek's whole chat with the chief was basically to say. I switched my life around to come here because you promised me chief and chief's not taking a bar of it. It's like, I gave you a position here because you were escaping New York. I can't. And Derek's like, well, I expect your vote. You promised me this position. I want this position. It's like, I've only got one vote. And it's like, yep, but it means a lot and I want it. The audacity for Derek to come and yell at chief like this, I find really infuriating. I really hated the way he went about this. He fucked up his own board meeting and he's feeling embarrassed that he fucked up and the way he thinks he can he can get back in the good books is to go and intimidate Weber and get angry and kind of twist it around and make this all Weber's fault because he fucked up because he was distracted and he was traumatized by Meredith drowning the way he should have gone about this is been like hi board hi Weber look I have to tell you that, yes, I really want this job, but unfortunately, like, mm-hmm. I went through this really traumatic thing with my girlfriend where she nearly died. I pulled her out of the water. She was blue. I thought she was dead, and that is really playing on my mind. I wouldn't mind having an extra week or so to think about this and talking to someone. I'm going to get some therapy. I'm going to talk this out. I just need a minute because, like, my head's not in the game right now. And I don't think anyone could punish anyone for saying something like that. Well, I also think it was part of Weber's responsibility as the chief to make sure everyone who was involved in this situation, so himself, mm-hmm. Bailey, Burke, and specifically Derek and Meredith, sorry, to go through counseling afterwards. In the same token, the audacity of Derek coming in and demanding this vote is then superseded by their second chat of the episode where Weber basically says, no, because you're dating Meredith, I'm not going to give you my vote because I couldn't manage a relationship and the chiefdom. I don't think you're going to be able to put your full love and time into your relationship with Meredith. And I promised her mother I'd look after her. Yeah. No. Absolutely not. That is so unprofessional. Your baggage and your inability to do your job because you were having an affair has absolutely nothing to do with Derek. You cannot assume someone's capability based on their relationships. That's not your place. You judge someone at their work for a work job. You judge someone purely on their work for a job. That's it. Their home life, their relationship, their personal life has nothing to do with it. 
unless it is directly affecting their ability to do their job, which this isn't. Yes. He isn't playing favorites. Which is then that's related to the that's related to the job. Agree. Yeah, Derek should have walked directly into HR and been like, so this is what I was just told. Yeah. Oof. Woof. Not yeah. okay. So bad. So bad. So Derek, after all this, he actually confides in Bailey. There's a lot of um Bailey has a really great episode today because she is she is just you know, she's giving advice left, right, center. She is there for people. She is like being mother hen of this whole episode. Bailey has set her boundaries about not wanting to know about people's personal lives. And I don't think that's a, an option anymore at this point. Oh, no point. one is going to, no one is respecting that. <laughs> I think that confides- episode in season one where Burke asked for Bailey's opinion and she was like, can I speak freely? Yeah. So good. Love that. Because they, like, they're Bailey's bosses and they still come to her with problems and advi- for advice. <sighs> so Derek actually confides in Bailey after this and he says, like, I came here to be chief, but me being with Meredith is going to complicate that because, because we- well, you know, because Weber has decided that if I'm in a relationship with Meredith, I'm not allowed to be chief because he promised Ellis that he'd look after Meredith and Meredith having a relationship with someone who's going to be the chief of a hospital is not looking after her means she's going to be neglected because if you're the chief of a hospital you neglect your wife because that's what he did it's like wild it makes no sense what what convoluted story is going on inside Weber's brain it's like Not everyone is going to do the job in the same way that you do a job. Do you remember how we were just talking about, do you want to fix your mental health issues or double it and pass it on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as Weber. And Bailey says something. Bailey's response to this is gold. Yeah. She says, if this turns into an either or situation, you pick the person you love. End of story. All this means nothing if you are alone. Look, which I agree with and also don't agree with at the same time, but it is a really good piece of advice for this moment. I think taking that advice and running with it and being like, hey, Meredith, this is what the chief just said. I think we need to maybe sit down and discuss what it's actually going to look like for our relationship if I do become the chief of the hospital and the expectations that we have of each other. I think so too. I think you have to be really clear. There you go. Communication. But you know, you don't don't do. You don't stuff communication. You don't just, you know, like not show up when you're supposed to and then not answer your phone, but she doesn't do the really satisfying snap of the Motorola. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was very upset about it. Why else have one of those phones if you don't (laughs) flip it shut? Like, what is the why? That's what they're good for. The snap. Snaps. The snap. Um, I have to pause here because I have to pee and my laptop is dying. Oh, my God, me too. Good. (laughs) We should definitely leave that in. Because we're talking about Bailey, we were talking about. This is what happens when two people with ADHD record a podcast. I know. Um, So we were just laughing about something. Oh, snap phones, Derek being a dick. Great. Communication, maybe should have been the point of this episode because the Izzy, the George, the Callie, the Bailey of it all 
Bailey doesn't really do any like doling out of tasks today. Everyone's just sort of already in it. And it looks like George and Izzy are in charge of the clinic, which is great because it's what Izzy wanted last week. Mm -hmm. George is being, we've all slept with a friend that we kind of just wanted nothing about it. And for me, that's always been pretty easy. Just like, cool, it happened, sweet, let's move on. Which is kind of what Izzy's doing. She's acting normal. Whereas George is pulling the, I need some time after this cataclysmic event. It's like, dude, you are digging your own grave. George is in, George is in a worse place. George is the one that has to live with the guilt. George is the one that cheated. George is... George is, it's kind of understandable that this is, George is finding it hard to be around, harder to be around Izzy. True. But we we do see by the end of the episode that he's digging his own grave by acting. Oh, yeah. Cagey. Like, yeah. So Izzy's just trying to work and be professional and George is being funny. But he goes running after a patient. And then these two people come up to Izzy saying, are you Dr. Izzy Stevens? She's like, yep, if you're Mr. Rodriguez, you're with Dr. George. No, no, you're Izzy Stevens. We have a daughter. She has leukemia. And she's like, yep, you're going to want to head to the leukemia ward. And then we find out. And the woman, while the woman starts crying, the woman is staring at Izzy and she starts tearing up and the the man that's standing there is like, I'm so sorry, but you look exactly like our daughter. And then they say it. They say, we are Hannah's parents. Um, you're Hannah. We're your daughter's adoptive parents and she's dying. And it's a lot to say to oh, someone. Yeah. She's dying and we need your bone marrow. We had another donor, but the donor died. You're like our last hope. Like, whoa, way to spring that on someone. At work. This is now your responsibility. (laughs) All my, like an email, a phone call, you tracked her down, but all my notes say is this girl can't catch a break. Her partner died, she slept with her best friend, and now the child that she is too uncomfortable to tell anyone about is here and dying, and she is the last hope. I also understand these parents, if they are on time pressure, like an email might just, they've just gone straight in. They're like, let's get her admitted. She needs to be in hospital anyway. Like, let's just, I understand why they spring it on her, but it's pretty fucking rude at the same time. It's so rude. Um, But her composure during this scene, when she's speaking to the parents, her professionalism as a doctor is just straight on until she marches directly past Dr. Bailey and just says, I'm not feeling well and runs to the bathroom and the sobbing. Yeah. Yeah. Bailey just, I can't talk to you if you're making all that noise, get your shit together and come out here and let me know what's going on. Look, (laughs) this is, this, uh, this is why Catherine Mm -hmm. Heigl won the Emmy for this season. She is incredible. She is such a strong actor. She is so specific with her acting choices and she feels like a real person. She makes the dialogue all feel so real and it is very well written, but, like, the way she speaks and uses her words and uh, I'm just, 
watching her is incredible. Watching her and Chandra Wilson in this scene is amazing. Note that Chandra Wilson was also nominated uh, at the Emmys for this season. I, I get it. They're, they're incredible. They're powerhouse women and this scene is fucking great. The way that Catherine Heigl just comes out with it and it's just like this, 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 and this. I had a daughter. She is here. She is dying. She's my bone marrow. I haven't told anyone about it. I gave her up for adoption. I might meet her. But we're and, waiting to hear whether or not she wants to meet me. And and Bailey just snaps into, look, I'm going to say mother mode. Yeah. I'm going to say she snaps into mother mode because she, you know, these interns are like her kids. This is kind of the relationship dynamic that the show is kind of building, you know, like she, they call her the Nazi at the start. She's very tough. She's very good at her job, but she slowly one by one warms up to all these interns and she is very protective of all of them. And this is her time to really bond with Izzy. I feel like her and Izzy haven't bonded very much. Izzy has kind of uh, been a bit of a problem for her. Izzy has broken a lot of rules and made Bailey really discipline her. And this is, this is, probably the most they've bonded so far. It's got to be a hard one for Bailey as well because she's set pretty strong ground rules with Izzy of don't get too attached to your patients. But she does a really good job of validating Izzy's feelings feelings. because a lot of this is Izzy knowing that she gave a child up for adoption because she wanted what was best for her and she says to Bailey, I wasn't expecting, I wanted to meet my daughter. But I thought I was going to be older and wiser and I thought she was going to be older and we could build a mutually respectful relationship like we were talking about before. But she's a child. And Bailey just says, even through all that, it doesn't mean you don't want her to want you. You So validating. You you didn't give her up because you didn't have love for this child you gave her up because you had so much love for this child exactly and bailey takes her to see her daughter and hannah's just not ready to but the parents are still hoping that even though hannah's not ready to see her that she'll still uh donate the bone marrow and we can see it in izzy's face that she, she doesn't know what to do and she turns around and bailey says she has to be here if she is ever going to get that chance to want you. Mm-hmm. Which is true. Which is true. And Bailey does the one thing that no one else in this hospital does of respecting privacy and respecting people's boundaries. And she goes to the clinic uh, because, you know, she needs her interns to go get um, Izzy's bloods done. And George gets all up in her face. And says, I demand to know where Izzy is. Because all of the interns kind of saw Izzy through a glass, like through in, in, in another room, her Bailey and Izzy were having a chat and Izzy was quite visibly upset, but none of them knew what was going on. And then Izzy just kind of disappeared. So everyone's a bit like, where's Izzy? What's going on? But George is very demanding. And even says, I demand, to which Bailey, you did not. Not just say you demand. <laughs> if Izzy wants to speak to you, she will call for you. But I, I just can't understand the reasoning behind giving Gray Izzy's Neither. tests. 
I just, what is the difference between you spending 10 minutes to go all the way to the clinic and hand it to Gray and you walking up to the place to or drop it up? Or just anyone, out, any nurse. Or giving it to a nurse who, doesn't, literally, who isn't going to look at it and go, oh, my God, that's Izzy's name. Any Anyone else. Like grab Bokey. You know Bokey's yeah. going to keep her trap shut. Also, lots of Bokey spotting in this episode. Yes. Um, but Bailey takes Izzy in to get an epidural and there's this moment of reflection from Izzy being like, oh, it's a big needle. Like, it doesn't look so I've big when I'm putting it in someone else, but ah, it looks big when it's going Ooh. in my spine. Yeah. Um, because the procedure she has to get done and the reason that she needs an epidural is because it numbs your lower half is they basically stick a big old needly thing directly into your hip and drill out some bone to get into the the sweet, juicy bone centre and suck it out. (laughs) Um, What we did fail to mention at the very beginning of this episode when all of our interns and apparently Callie, because Callie now um, gets changed in the interns um, I know I thought that was weird room. too but maybe yeah, she was just in there she, to see George like maybe she was just waiting to see, to see George because she's coming off the back of a 48 hour shift she's exhausted and George is like oh baby I'm real sorry let's catch up for a coffee yeah. at three so while after George has been demanding he runs after Gray finds out where Izzy is and then Callie walks into the clinic just looking so defeated and relieved that she's just going to spend some time to be comforted by her partner and she finds out he's not there. He's forgotten and he's mm-hmm. with. And he's with Izzy. Yeah. Izzy busts, George busts in, Bailey threatens to call security, but he ends up staying there and holding Izzy's hands throughout this. He helps her get dressed. Okay, quickly. He holds her hand through this procedure. Bailey is kind of relieved of this duty and lets him lets lets him stay there for her. And and it's like all of a sudden we remember how fucking good friends these two are. We haven't seen it for a little while since since the wedding. All we've seen is Izzy be really upset that she's losing George. All we've seen is Izzy be a dick to Callie. And then you see this moment of George being there and you go, oh, shit, yeah, they are best friends. They are so fucking close. And no wonder Izzy's been upset because she hasn't had this. Well, George even says to Meredith, like, you need to tell me where she is and what's going on. We're just having one of our stupid little fights and I will never forgive myself if she is in genuine hurt and danger and I can't be there for her. Which is exactly a reflection of. Christina and Meredith, which is exactly a reflection of the way those two would act. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, Christina and Meredith having a stupid little fight before the before the ferry incident and Christina being like, I'm never going to forgive myself if I don't see her, if I don't find her, if she something happens to her and I haven't told her because the last time that they saw each other, Meredith was in a bit of a bad mood. Christina was hiding this thing from her. She wanted to tell her, but she couldn't. It's like. It's a reflection of this. We realise how strong bonded Izzy and George are as friends because they are reflecting this bond that Christina and Meredith have. And after the surgery, 
Izzy does tell George what's going on. She says, I, I have a daughter. She's 11. My mother wanted me to keep her, but I knew even at 16, I knew that this baby deserved a better life than one at Shahela's trailer park. And now she's here and she's dying and she doesn't want to meet me. George wheels her upstairs to where Hannah is being treated and she's too scared to look at Hannah. So she has George do it. And George says, first, I just also want to say, there's a moment where George helps Izzy get dressed and George helps Izzy put her pants on. And it's, it's blink and you'll miss it, but it is so fucking mm-hmm. intimate and intimate, but not sexual. How many people do you know who you would let put your pants on for you? There's not many. When you are in so much pain after, so I know both of us have been you know, in hospital before, in surgery before. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, even just when you're You're so vulnerable, sick or when you're tired, you are so vulnerable. You are so vulnerable when you can't move your body, when you are in pain. So someone else has to do something. Even, you know, when like someone puts your socks on for you or something, like it's, it's a weird feeling and it's a hard feeling. And this is, the, pa- the pants of it all feels so much more intimate. You were talking about the correlation between Izzy and George's relationship and Meredith and Christina's, and all I'm thinking about with this intimacy is Christina holding Meredith's feet and touching her face. That's a perfect example. Yeah. They're places you don't normally touch. They're things that you don't normally do. It's It's kind of like... It shows a lot of trust. Yeah, like... Being a person that your friend can call uh, when they're having a really bad time and you you put them in the shower. Exactly. That sort of, yeah, intimacy. Um, but she trusts him enough to take him to see Hannah. And So yeah. I just also want to say, like, this, this Izzy, after the pants, after Izzy confides in him, he says, like, he says something like, you are so brave or you are so incredible for what you did today. He compliments her and then he goes, and I have to go. And he leaves. He walks out of that room at this moment where she has just been so vulnerable and they have just shared this intimate thing, proving how strong their bond is. And it, and he, he walks away. And that's when I bawled my eyes out. Izzy has lost Denny, who she was about to propose to, the first real big love of her life. He's gone. Izzy was grieving Denny and all of a sudden lost this person, lost George, lost someone else she could have these intimate conversations with because he was off with Callie and she she got hurt and upset and she was ruining that because she was in pain. And she tried to get this intimacy with George back. She went about it in the wrong way. They got the wrong sort of intimate. They had sex which is not what they should have done. But she was craving intimacy so badly because she doesn't have anyone. And then all of a sudden her daughter, who she, you know, it's not really her daughter. She gave her up for adoption, but but she did have this baby. There is a connection there. That is an intimate connection. Whether or not that connection is alive and present in your life, that's going to affect you. And She's so close to meeting this girl, Hannah, and Hannah says she doesn't want to. Fair enough, totally fine. But that's just another rejection of an intimate relationship and I can't imagine 
how hurt and how alone and how rejected she must have felt in that moment when George walked out of that room. Luckily enough, he realizes he was being a dick and he comes straight back in and wheels her out. But there is a moment there that I think is really important to acknowledge. Mm. As I said, this girl just can't catch a break. Totally. But he he sees Hannah for her. Yeah. And he says, she's got your eyes and your mouth. So she probably talks a lot and eats a lot. She's getting the infusion now. And if she's in any pain, she's not letting on. Yeah. She's tough. Yeah. And Izzy stands up and looks at her. And she does have those big brown eyes. But then something truly devastating happens. And it could have been so easily fixed with the truth. But George leaves and mm-hmm. he, he pops out of an elevator and he sees Callie standing there and, oh, I don't know how someone can look so simultaneously destroyed and stunning at the same time. Just how? Totally. How, how, just beautiful but also you can see that her body and her soul and her mind are just jumping around and devastated she looks like she's been crying for three hours and she asks george point blank he says i'm so sorry i missed my our our coffee date where have you been he's like i was in the clinic all day if you had just said if you would if you had I've been fucking on it. This is the problem with George this whole time is that he's just never honest with her. Because Callie's so understanding. If he'd said, I was with Izzy, she had to get an epidural and a bone marrow extraction because the child that she she had, a, or just said, hey, I need to sit down with you. No, he couldn't have said that. I mean, actually, do you know what? He could have. He could have. But... He could have been like, I have something to tell you. It needs to stay between us. I'm sorry I missed our date, but this is what's going on with Izzy. Yeah. And Kelly would have been like, I'm upset that you missed our date, but holy shit, you are a good friend. But the fact that he said nothing. Totally. But he should have said this hours ago. The fact that he didn't tell her, the fact that she's been upset for the last three hours and he hasn't even tried to contact her or look for her is not okay. He keeps letting her be... He keeps letting her have a horrible time. He's not protective of her at all. And she knows now. Yeah. Well, she knows that because that was a clear lie because she looked for him in the clinic and that was his answer. And she goes, oh, that was a lie. And Meredith told. Yeah. She knows it was a lie. She gave him two chances. She asked him twice. Yeah. All he had to say was, I was with Izzy. Something really bad's happened. Go home, get some sleep. I will tell you about it in the morning. That's it. That's mm. all she had to say. Even though something bad happened, I think he's done this to her so many times. The fact that he didn't tell her earlier in the day, the fact that he didn't say, hey, look, something's happening with Izzy. Can we postpone this? The fact that he forgot about her is the problem. It kind of doesn't matter how bad it was. I I understand that this excuse is a valid excuse. It's definitely a reason why you would postpone a coffee date, but you need to be honest. He's forgotten her again and he's just let her wallow in sadness and be sad and it's this thing where he wants to know where Izzy is and he's so concerned about her because he knows she's upset but he doesn't care about where Callie is even though he also knows 
that she's upset and having a hard time. That's exactly the problem. But our last storyline in this episode is Ava. We see her face and she's pretty and she's hot. There's photos taken of her so that her face can be plastered all over news sites so we can try and get an answer on who she is and where she belongs. And it doesn't take very long. Mm-hmm. We have a couple that comes in and we find out that their daughter went missing. We see a photo and it does look a lot like Ava. She had a husband. She was pregnant. He packed up and left in the middle of the night. And even though they begged and pleaded, she followed him to try and get him back and she disappeared. So they say that she had the same blood type as Ava, same color eyes, same height, same hair. She's also missing her tonsils. Mm-hmm. And so this starts off the right way for me. The fact that Alex and Addison are just talking to this couple in a room. Mm-hmm. They haven't told Haver about it. They haven't let her see Ava. They're just having a chat and asking for very specific details of her life and anything medical that they can check. That's correct. That is mm-hmm. how this should go. But all of a sudden, in my eyes, this becomes very unprofessional very quickly. What do you think? I think that it wasn't unprofessional on Alex or I don't think I think the 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 family acted wrong. There were other checks that could have been done. It could have even been something as sneaky as a blood test. Oh, a DNA test. Why the fuck are they not text? Yes, a DNA test. Why are they not doing that? Yeah, that's what I mean. Well, Alex does say that because the parents barge in and he says, no, there were other tests I needed to do. But the bottom line is let's do a DNA test. But the parents barge in and his de- her, her father, they say, you know, your name is Shannon Marie. Um, and the father's so excited mm. to bond and all he sees is his daughter. And Alex immediately puts up that tough guy front again because he doesn't want her to get hurt and he doesn't want himself to get hurt. And we find out that, you know, she's going to come home. They've built a room and dad's like, you've got hundreds of diaries to read and you can find out all of these things. And dad's teaching her how to play cards and the mother is standing there devastated saying, I can't take her home. This girl is not my daughter. And her mother says this really specific thing that's like, Mm. she could be my daughter. They do look very similar, but a mother knows. But she doesn't, it's at the chance that Ava isn't her daughter. But there are very easy ways to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's said, crazy DNA's. to me that they but don't do that. Instead, her mother's just yeah. just decides to it's ghost horrible. her. Horrible! It's horrible. Her mum does say, "Like, look, you understand that if this isn't our daughter, our daughter is still out there. Like, we need to keep searching." And yeah, fair, fair enough. But if this is your daughter, then you're abandoning her. It, and <laughs> she says, "Like, the dad, he needs it to be her." He needs this. He misses it, which is fair. I, I understand that. But, like, to just then be like, we're going. After all this bonding, after getting everyone's hopes up, like, this, sh- she, they should not have been allowed to meet her. They should, you should not be allowed to get her hopes up like this. You, no. You have to do, they, would, they were about to let her go home and they didn't do a DNA test. They told her she was coming. Yeah, that, like. Do you remember the episode with the baby that was found in the trash can at the school and the four 14-year-old girls? 
what was the first thing Addison said? DNA test. Like we we can go down the deeply traumatic route or we we can do a DNA test. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe I didn't even think of that, but you're right. It's that's that's all I was screaming at the TV. I was like, why are you not testing? Like what this why is what is happening? Even to the point where Ava says to Alex, and I think this is a bit of a red flag of a like they're getting too close. And she's like, Alex, please, like let, let me go doctor. home. Pull some strings for me. And he's like, Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I will. I'll pull some strings. You can do all your doctory bed rest at home. That's no. like Alex. Get a fucking, like, why are you not testing if this is her family or not? Instead of doing any of that, the mother has just got it in her head that this isn't her daughter and she goes out, asks Alex to fetch the father to meet her in the lobby and he's stuck telling her that they've left and she's devastated. These people are supposed to be my, these those are supposed to be my people. You want to keep me all to yourself, your pathetic captive audience. So Alex is again being held responsible for this person's feelings. And I just, oh, my God, you are so right. The DNA test, the one test they could have done. Like, yeah, yeah ask for birthmarks and doing. shit, but, like, because also you're is, in a hospital. So- There's a whole bunch of blood kicking around. So easy. It's so easy. They literally yeah. tested Izzy to see if she was a match yeah. for a daughter. Like they did it today. It's crazy this doesn't happen. I mean, I understand. It, I, I do, like, uh, from a storyline perspective, I like, I mean, it's I don't it's heartbreaking, but that's why it's good. That the fact that the parents barge in and they start being like, you are a daughter, you are a daughter, but still the next step is let's do an a DNA test and then if it doesn't match, then you're like, okay, this is why we don't let you meet them until but like after in we that know if you're room, related or not. Like. Let's just pull in that. You remember last episode, Izzy had the little blood taking kit that she knocked the um the the dollhouse with. Just bring that little thing in there. Take yeah. some blood from mum because it could always accidentally not be dad. But like, let's yeah. take some blood from mum. And Ava's getting blood taken every second day. Yeah. Cool. So let's check your levels. It's 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 going to take two hours. It's wild. The the other thing because I was like so annoyed at this storyline for not doing that I was like oh but then is that being is that being like anti-adoption I was like no it's not this whole episode is about adoption and if if the if the parents were like a DNA test won't work because we adopted her then that's an interesting story that's fine it's a different story but like would you not start with the DNA and then if they needed to prove that they adopted a kid, then they just find the adoption paperwork. Like that's, again, that's just a different story. That's fine. That's a different story in and of I, itself. 100%. Mm, Correct. Because, yeah, it started yeah, so, so funny. I was going through this whole thing in my head where I was like, do a thing. And I was like, am I being like anti-adoption by su- suggesting that? No, 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 you weren't. But they didn't mention that she was adopted. Well, I also have adopted people in my family, so I'm definitely not anti-adoption or anything you're spiraling on that no no no. that wasn't a thing spiraling a little bit yeah made me crazy anyway that yeah no that um yeah that that whole situation could have been avoided very okay yeah so at the bottom line they could be her parents i suppose we're gonna find out on episode 21 
let us know what your thoughts are. If you're enjoying, I hope you're all enjoying season 19. If you're up to that, if you're not. Oh, that's so weird to think about. Mm-hmm. Exciting. <laughs> um, we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 Sing it. Bye. 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 Bye.